Due to the nature of the topics covered, this programme is not suitable for children or people who are easily offended or of a fragile disposition. Still at large, unsolved British murders. Each episode will take a look at an individual murder or series of killings that, despite the best efforts of the various constabularies involved, have, for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. Series 2, Episode 4 the Hammersmith Nude Murders, a.k.a. Jack the Stripper, Part 3. If this is the first episode you're listening to, I would advise you that you go back and begin at the start of the Hammersmith Nudes mini-series. That is Episode 2 of Series 2. This episode is the concluding part, so it would be very confusing to start from here. Over the last two episodes... I've looked at the deaths of eight young women and have examined the three primary suspects, none of whom were convicted. This episode will look at the various other suspects and some of the theories put forward about who is responsible for the deaths of these women. One prominent theory that carried enough weight for at least one suspect to be interviewed by the murder squad investigating the case was that the murders had been committed by an ex-policeman who had been thrown off the force following a series of break-ins, for which he went to prison. This four-year conviction was handed down in 1962. And being a model prisoner, his sentence was halved, so that he was released in 1964. In his 2015 book, Crime and Corruption at the Yard, The Downfall of Scotland Yard, former Crime Investigation Branch Officer David Woodland recounts the events that occurred with this particular suspect. He states that the officer was interviewed by John DeRose, who was leading the investigation, and his second-in-command, Detective Superintendent Bill Baldock. He states that the suspect's written statement admits to the break-ins and were a way for him to show up his ex-colleagues. DS Baldock conducted a wide and thorough examination of the suspect's movements, but could not find any links to the murders or to the women prior to their murder. David Woodland goes on to write that in Baldock's closing report, he concluded, quote, This man cannot be eliminated from the investigation and remains a strong suspect. The circumstances surrounding his mental history, knowledge of the area and background point to his being the killer. There is speculation online that this former policeman was a misdirection to protect a serving officer with a substantial reputation and that Baldock knew there was no connection prior to the suspect being interviewed. This, however, is conjecture and as yet unsubstantiated. It is, however, a theme that is postulated by many of the writers, journalists and researchers into the case. This first came to the public's attention in 1972 when an investigative reporter for the Sun newspaper, Owen Summers, questioned if a policeman was responsible. This was further expanded upon 
by the Daily Mirror journalist Brian McConnell in his 1974 book on the case, Found Naked and Dead. It's a difficult book to read because of the pejorative descriptions of the women who were working as prostitutes, but that gives a good insight into the mindset of the time. Author David Seabrook also writes about a former Metropolitan Police detective whom, he claims, was suspected by several of the senior investigating officers. This policeman is also mentioned in former Metropolitan Police detective Dick Kirby's book from 2016, Laid Bare, The Nude Murders and the Hunt for Jack the Stripper. A prominent policeman is named in the 2002 book by Jimmy Evans and Martin Short, The Survivor. They go so far as to allege that the officer is Superintendent Tommy Butler of the Legendary Flying Squad, or Sweeney as it is affectionately known. The nickname Sweeney comes from the Cockney rhyming slang, Sweeney Todd Flying Squad. Its official name is a little less charismatic, Specialist Crime Directorate 7, or SCD7. The Flying Squad is one of the few routinely armed police units in the UK. They operate covertly and in plain clothes. The Flying Squad name comes from the fact that the unit is not bound by any of the traditional divisional boundaries that other sections must recognise. They have a reputation for extensive infiltration and intelligence gathering, rapid response and stern, forceful action. They often work in conjunction with Special Operations 19. SO19 is the Specialist Firearms Command. They are all tough, seasoned coppers who do not mess around. Thomas Marius Joseph Tommy Butler was a Chief Detective Superintendent who had had a spectacular career, including leading the hunt for the Great Drain Robbery cohort of criminals. Butler was a hawkish-looking man with a lean physique and close-cropped hair around his balding head. He was a dedicated officer who lived with his mother and was a lifelong bachelor. As was the way, he had nicknames. One Day Johnny, for his speed at resolving crimes, and Grey Fox, due to his hair and his cunning tactics. His pursuit of the great train robbers led to his retirement being suspended to allow him to continue his hunt for the criminals. His often secretive and somewhat autocratic style of leadership led to criticism from another famous flying squad officer, Jack Slipper, often known as Slipper of the Yard. Yet it is a rather shady character who names Butler as the killer. Jimmy Evans was another known associate of the Cray Twins and the Richardson Gang. His primary business was safe-blowing, and he had a reputation of being a mean-spirited killer, primarily of other villains, which is almost a public service. Evans was also, for a time, considered a suspect in the Hammersmith nude murders. This seems to have been a source of anger to him. It also seems to be one of a myriad of reasons why he would have an axe to grind with the members of the Metropolitan Police. And as there is no firm evidence against Tommy Butler, it seems that this is merely the vindictive musings of a vindictive man against a dedicated, determined and decorated copper. A known associate of the Richardsons had a reputation for violence, intimidation and pulling people's teeth out. Mad Frankie Fraser. He fits the bill, and it is alleged that he murdered up to 40 people yet his name never appears in the suspect list. Nor does Eddie Richardson, one of the heads of the Richardson gang, that Fraser was a part of. The Richardsons were a gang known for their violence, and their trial in 1966 
became known as the Torture Trial. It was called this because of the barbarity of the acts that Gang had carried out. There is a curious lack of connection to the Richardsons, despite the fact that they were involved in racketeering, prostitution, pornography and violence, including murder. And there is a striking similarity to the photo fits issued of the Hammersmith murderer to both Eddie Richardson and Frankie Fraser. Disclosures by the imprisoned gang members revealed a connection to corrupt officers in the Metropolitan Police. Charlie Richardson said, quote, The most lucrative, powerful and extensive protection racket ever to exist was administered by the Metropolitan Police. Sometimes we would pay people to be found committing small crimes so that our friendly local protection racketeer in blue could have somebody to arrest and look like they had been busy. Could the influence they had within the Metropolitan Police also have extended to corrupting the investigation into the Hammersmith nude murders? It's a thought worth considering. Other policemen have been thrown into the mix too, with one seemingly to disappear after moving to Australia. As appealing as a mysterious disappearance seems, the sheer size of Australia could be the reason. The entire British Isles would fit, with room to spare, in the central outback. That sparsely populated region has generated more than a few disturbing mysteries all of its own. I highly recommend the extraordinarily good Australian true crime podcast, Case File, for cases from that neck of the global woods and elsewhere. But I digress. From here on, the conjecture becomes more and more broad and sometimes, to my mind at least, wanders into the realms of fiction worthy of Linda LaPlante. Gritty, believable realism, but wholeheartedly made up. The theories and suspects are worthy of consideration, though. Another case that made national news in the mid-60s was the Profumo Affair, which saw chiropractor to the famous, influential and lascivious Dr Stephen Ward accused of treachery when John Profumo and Russian diplomat Captain Evgeny Ivanov both had friendships with Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davis. Stephen Ward took his own life before the conclusion of his trial, but there's much more to it than that. Dr Stephen Ward was a chiropractor with a client list of the famous and influential. He also organised parties for those people to mingle and network. He was friends with many young women, including would-be model Christine Keeler. Christine was working as a topless showgirl at Murray's Cabaret Club in Soho and had become friends with the other showgirls there including Mandy Rice Davis. Through his clients, Ward had established friendships with many dignitaries, including Lord Astor. Lord Astor was William Waldorf Astor II, third Viscount Astor. He had been educated at Eton and New College, Oxford. He later became a Conservative Party politician when he was elected for the Wickham constituency in 1951. He held this post until his father's death in 1952, whereby he retired his seat and took his title and place in the House of Lords. Ward would regularly rent a cottage on Astor's family estate in Cliveden, Buckinghamshire. This was where Ward would entertain clients and would have the showgirls come and stay. Because of the nature of Ward's practice, many different peoples from many different backgrounds and nationalities would be entertained there. Included in this list were John Profumo, Secretary of State for War in Harold Macmillan's Conservative government 
and Captain Evgeny Ivanov of the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, as the Russian Empire was then known. At the time, political tensions between the Soviets and the West were strained. This was the Cold War, after all. Military Intelligence Section 5, or MI5 as it is better known, had an interest in Ivanov. They believe he could be turned to become a double agent for the British government, and by extension, the West's allies. It was at one of the pool parties at Cliveden that John Profumo met Christine Keeler, and the two began an affair. Unbeknownst to Profumo, Keeler was also having an affair with Evgeny Ivanov. Here the tangles begin. It is alleged that both Ivanov and Ward questioned Christine about the timing of American missiles being deployed in West Germany. At the time, Christine and Mandy were living rent-free at Stephen Ward's house in Wimpole Mews, London. Ward was a charismatic and popular figure, and it is stated that he had a low libido, so that although he was often surrounded by pretty and vivacious young women, his friendships were, by and large, platonic. Profumo and Christie would sometimes meet at Ward's house when he wasn't there. By this time, Stephen Ward was being handled by MI5 as a conduit for information from Ivanov. Stephen Ward was also well connected with the British royal family via his portrait drawings. These included Prince Philip and Princess Margaret, the Queen's sister. What a tangled mess. But at this point, it was all still behind closed doors. Eventually, the news of the relationship became public. John Profumo stood in the House of Commons and denied any relationship with Christine Keeler, Mandy Rice Davis, or Stephen Ward. That, however, wasn't the case. He deliberately lied to Parliament in an attempt to cling on to his job, but it was only for a few weeks until he admitted the relationship with Christine Keeler. MI5 had begun to have doubts about the reliability of Ward, and when the news of the affair with Profumo and Ivanov broke, Ward's society friends, his friends in high places, they all abandoned him. He was subsequently charged with living off immoral income. That was to say that Keeler and Rice Davis were prostitutes and Ward their pimp. This was stoutly and continually denied by both the girls and Stephen Ward. Nevertheless, to trial, Ward went and was subsequently found guilty. Stephen Ward took an overdose of barbiturates upon hearing the verdict and was rushed from Wimpole Mews to hospital, where he died the following morning. The case raised many worrying points about the British Security Service and the actions of the state against people they deemed to be problematic. It has even been called an act of revenge by the state. There are even questions about the overdose taken by Ward, as it seems he had taken the pills over a long period of time, and some question whether he would have been able to ingest voluntarily that number of barbiturates over that period of time without outside influence. That is to say, the rumour has it that Ward was forced to suicide by a British intelligence operative. Statecraft is often a terrible, messy and sometimes brutal business. With Russian spies once more in the news in the UK, with the alleged use of Russian-made nerve agents against former Russian spy Sergei Skripal in the beautiful cathedral city of Salisbury, Wiltshire, it is worthwhile remembering that the Cold War never really came to an end 
and there are spies among us, even today. In the 1980s, evidence came to light that the four officers who had built the case against Stephen Ward had done so to ensure that he was found guilty and that their involvement amounted to a grand cover-up by the government and organs of the state. Put simply, Stephen Ward was framed and an innocent man was convicted of a crime he did not commit and his death was a silencing. In 2014, a full review of the case was begun. There is a curious parallel with the previous theory. There were supposedly four policemen involved in the framing of Stephen Ward, and following the end of the case against him, they all left the force, and one is supposed to have moved to Australia in 1966, and then, as if by magic, disappeared. They are also supposed to have been involved with the questioning of the working girls who are known to have been in the social scene of Stephen Ward and the parties at Cliveden. It is alleged that they had been intimidating and even threatening the women to give testimony against Ward. Four hostile policemen involved with the women who were working as prostitutes. All very interesting, all very mysterious. What, however, does this have to do with the young women who were murdered in Hammersmith? Well, during the trial, many young women who had connections to Stephen Ward, or Christine Keeler, or Mandy Rice Davis, were called to testify. Amongst them was Margaret McGowan, or as we know her through this series, Frances Brown. Her testimony had been in defence of Ward. Her testimony, however, is still unavailable, as is the entire transcript of Stephen Ward's trial. This decision was taken by Lord Chief Justice Lord Parker of Wandsworth. The file is still sealed, an almost unprecedented situation in British legal history. So we come to one of the more outlandish, although sadly not entirely implausible theories about the murders. Six of these women may have been silenced by the state because of their connection, sometimes firmly established and sometimes tenuously suggested, to the trial of Stephen Ward, the fall of the Macmillan government and Her Britannic Majesty's secret service. Stephen Ward's trial and death were in the July of 1963 and Gwyneth Rees went missing in the November. Is it possible? Well, yes-ish. Is it probable? As the distasteful Francis Urquhart in the original British political drama House of Cards said so malevolently, you might very well think that. I couldn't possibly comment. It does bring us back, rather neatly, to another theory about the case. The media-created spectre of Jack the Stripper might not be one single killer, but two murderers, using almost identical methods and sharing a storage space for their bodies. For this mini-series, within the series, I've used a thumbnail that shows the composite pictures as drawn up by Scotland Yard. They are quite clearly very different people. One is dark-haired and round-faced with a flattened nose, reminiscent of the pugilist's conch after it has had a lifetime of being smeared over the owner's face for sport. The other is of a slender-faced male, possibly in his thirties, with blonde or fair hair. They bear a striking resemblance to Mad Frankie Fraser and Eddie Richardson. Eyewitness testimony is a complicated matter. The human memory is prone to all manner of weaknesses and unconscious alterations. Yet it can also be pivotal, 
The description of the suspects, or people of interest, are from the evening or early hours. The streets would have been lit with low pressure sodium lights that produce a rather horrible orange light that is quite contrasty and can, depending on weather conditions and time of day, produce all manner of curious effects. Colours become difficult to precisely identify. Considering that the light produced from the sodium vapour streetlight bulb is technically monochromatic, with all the light being between 598.0 and 598.6 nanometers on the visible light spectrum, colour rendering is virtually impossible. So this raises concerns about the colour of the vehicles seen in connection with the case. Francis Brown was reportedly seen getting into a grey coloured Ford Zephyr, but under the constrained spectrum of the streetlight, that car could have been light blue, or light green, or beige, or even a grubby white. The same applies to the van that was sometimes reported in connection with the murders. The stated evidence that they were grey cars is deeply flawed on a basic level in relation to the effect of the light under which they were seen. The same applies to the men in their clothes. Streetlight does change the perceived colour of hair. If the darker of the two men had dark red hair, under streetlight it is going to look dark brown to black, and the blonde man could have had lighter red hair or even be grey. His suit could have been pale blue or sandy and not silvery grey. Police considered that there were two separate killers who might have been working together, but could not find definitive evidence beyond the eyewitness accounts. So we have the descriptions of two men. One, shortish, stocky, and with dark or black hair, a round face, and slightly unkempt or in working clothes, and another taller, slim, well-dressed man with fair or light red hair. And we have eight dead women. There is a striking parallel with another unsolved murder case from the 1960s, Bible John. This dual witness similarity is striking because the two sets of witnesses in the Bible John case describe an almost identical pair of men. Is it possible that Jack the Stripper was actually a pair of misogynist murderers who were working together and had relocated after the police scrutiny in London became too much? Did they relocate to Scotland and begin preying on the women in the dance halls? Are there other such cases where different eyewitnesses gave different descriptions of the last man seen with a young woman in the time between 1964 and 1968. Were Mavis Hudson and Rita Ellis their victims? Mavis was a 15-year-old girl who was found strangled and partially disrobed in a derelict building in December 1966, and Rita was taken from an RAF base in November 1967. Those questions will have to, for now, remain unanswered. There's an interesting account in David Seabrook's book, Jack of Jumps, about an encounter that Frances Brown had had the month she disappeared. Extract quote. Brown told her friend that she had had a bad scare while out on the streets the previous night. A man in a small van had stopped her and she got him. He asked her how much she charged, but before she could answer, he produced a small black card which bore the words Metropolitan Police in gold lettering. He said he was CID. She said to the man that he could not nick her as he was on his own, and the man said he had his mate up the road who could easily do it. The man told her 
she had a laughing face and discussed the maniac who was murdering the prostitutes. She asked him how the women were murdered and he explained that the murderer pulled the coat down over their shoulders, locking the arms and screwed whatever they were wearing underneath around their neck and strangled them. Francis Brown couldn't work this man out, so feeling frightened, she left him. She offered her friend no description of the driver and no detailed description of his van, remarking simply that it was grey and that in the back there was a lot of rubbish, like clothes. Seabrook, David, Jack of Jumps, Kindle locations 3825 to 3833. Granter Publications, Kindle edition. This type of bragging behaviour is not unknown from murderers, but it is far from conclusive. And again, the van is described as being grey, which under street lighting is virtually meaningless. The interesting point is that she claims that the rear of his van had piles of clothes in it, and the majority of the clothes of the murdered were never found. Was there also somewhere out of sight a small collection of teeth? We shall never know for sure. Another poorly regarded theory is the connection to the pornographic industry. Several of the murdered women were known to have, at times, been in either still shoots or had appeared in the often low quality 8mm, often silent stag films of the 1960s. As we are all aware now, the 1960s are heralded as the start of the sexual revolution, the emergence of the permissive society and cited, rather hysterically, as the first trumpet call of the permissive society, the moment many believe that British morality, manners and family life began seriously to deteriorate. By biographer and former Daily Mail journalist, Graham Lord. In our case, the involvement of the young women with the pornographic trade can be seen in a variety of ways. Their disrobed bodies in under-the-counter magazines, or as portable, indecent postcards, or as highly expensive, for what they were, fragile celluloid offerings of brief length that were traded secretly and cautiously amongst connoisseurs of the carnal. Although the more popular trope of grubby little men with grubby little urges and fingernails as dirty as their minds seems to still persist in some quarters. These visual offerings were, and still are, used by some working girls as promotional material. The representation of people enjoying coitus has always been a part of the human cultural experience, in one way or another, to one degree or another. There are vast temples in India with delicate carvings depicting congress of two or more people as a revered spiritual act. We in the West have struggled with our representation of sexuality from the spiritual to the divine and further on to the profane, obscene and damaging. Even now, in the 21st century, we wrestle with the dichotomy of being sexually liberated while also trying to demonise the reproduction of images and recordings of the sexual act as detrimental, regardless of context. This isn't to say that all pornography is good, clean, naughty fun. The depiction of harm, of torture, rape and even murder as part of the pornographic pantheon has had serious real-world consequences, including people using it to fuel their sadistic violent fantasies until they make the leap from fantasy to reality and another young life is violently snuffed out for a few moments of selfish euphoria and release. There have and continue to be far too many people losing their lives this way. It is the snuffing out of lives 
that brings us to the least likely of all the theories. There is, amongst some people, a belief that the women were all killed as part of the production of the mythical snuff film. These are films where one of the people is murdered as the pinnacle of the action. I use the word mythical in relation to the time period, as sadly, revoltingly, such materials are now known to exist on the dark web. The Red Rooms, as they are known, have, it is reported, an incredibly high entrance price, and absolutely no morality, and lack basic humanity, and are devoid of empathy. The modern extremes of the pornographic industry are a long way from the almost tame output of the 1950s and 60s. The theory that these women were victims of an elite ring of sexual predators making snuff films for their clientele is almost dismissible as being outlandish speculation. Although there is a really curious and difficult to completely ignore circumstance. Two of the women were found on or near the Heron trading estate in Acton. Police postulated that their bodies, and the bodies of at least two others, were stored and possibly mutilated within the electricity substation and or paint shop that only a few people would have legitimate access to. Forensics made the link, established the link, cemented the link. Why then was there almost no coverage of a pertinent business that was also on the Heron Trading Estate? I refer to Zonal Film Facilities Limited. They were, much like a lot of commercial processors, suppliers and large studios, situated on a light industrial estate. The infrastructure of these estates, with spacious buildings, large doorways, enhanced waste treatment and disposal, coupled with the substantially cheaper ground rents than fancy high street venues, were ideal for the photographic business. In the less environmentally aware time of yesteryear, the noxious liquids from the processing of film, in particular Blix, a portmanteau of bleach fix used in the processing of colour film, would be poured straight down the drain. Aside from the poisonous nature of Blix, it was also a fiscally irresponsible way to deal with the waste, as the silver halides can be reclaimed. I digress. I'm a photographer and photojournalist when wearing my other hat. Having spent many decades in the industry, I've seen many things in many labs, from reckless waste disposal to all manner of indecent images, some of which were instantly reported and the people involved arrested and later sentenced. So it is not unbelievable that a film facility on an industrial estate in Acton could have had a discreet arrangement with people who are in the production of materials that could have likely fallen foul of the law under the Obscene Publications Act 1959. I've seen similar arrangements in the pre-digital age. A little premium on the price and the films are processed, printed and delivered all out of the view of most of the staff, all strictly cash in hand, all strictly hush-hush. However, I struggle to conceive of a snuff lab operating in Acton in the swinging 60s, but that may be more of a failure on the part of my imagination than reality. A backstreet processor for the skin flick trade? Absolutely. But the snuff film angle? No. The snuff film angle is also flawed because of the injuries sustained. They were very mild for a sadistic film that graphically shows the murder of a woman. Was the brief from the elite client, I want to see the most quiet, most imperceptible murder possible by the expert application of pressure to the carotid artery? It doesn't sit right. 
And that's really where the story ends. No firm, conclusive suspects beyond a man who was in Scotland for one of the murders he was supposed to have committed before he committed suicide, a rogue detective, secret service spies killing witnesses in a cover-up, snuff films and a pair of roaming psychopaths killing in tandem. One of the greatest parallels with the more infamous Jack is that there are police theories which have problems. There are other theories worthy of regard, but still lacking the solidity needed to definitively pin this on someone. And a cast of characters and suspects as broad as that for the Whitechapel murders. There is one more really heartbreaking fact to consider. Forensic science has gone through a revolutionary period since these murders took place. And the ability for science to obtain DNA profiles or partial profiles from decades-old evidence gives hope to solving many cold cases, but not this one. All of the evidence relating to the murders has either been lost or destroyed, either willfully or accidentally. All we have are a bunch of police files in the National Archives that are, frustratingly, sealed until 2064. The loss of evidence is a great injustice. These women, with all their flaws, frailties and personalities, deserved better. They deserve justice. Their relatives deserve answers. There are still none. This episode of Still at Large is dedicated to the victims. Elizabeth Pig. Gwyneth Rees. Hannah Tailford. Irene Lockwood. Helen Barthemily. Mary Fleming. Francis Brown. Bridget O'Hara. Still at Large is an independent true crime podcast. It is written, presented and edited by me, Desmond J. Brambley. If you would like to help support the show, please visit our Patreon page by visiting patreon.com stillatlargepodcast. You can join in with conversations about the show on our Facebook discussion group by visiting Facebook Still at Large Podcast. Some music is by Duke Deck, an online music AI at dukedeck.com and some was created by me. Still at Large is a tiny yellow dinosaur media production.